listening to High Temperature Times, and boy have I got a ghost story for you. My name is Griffin Patterson, and when I'm not out scaring children and littering yards with corn, I play the role of application specialist with Harbison Walker International, a member of Calderas. Nothing says Halloween like ghost stories. I personally make it a point to read a few classics from the likes of Ray Bradbury, H.P. Lovecraft, and Stephen King on yearly rotations. But this time, I'll be dipping into the ink myself to tell you a story the likes of which you've never heard. So gather around the campfire, because we'll be talking about haunted refractories. While I'm loading wood into the fire and getting it rip-roaring, let's talk a little bit about blast furnaces. The Iron Age is an old one, and making iron is such a critical evolution in the world we know and love. It all starts with melting iron ore, that little rock that people have known about for thousands of years. However, this little rocky fellow leaves our beloved metal in an oxide form, and those don't forge or cast so well. So we need to strip that oxygen away, leaving it in its metallic form. The oldest way of doing that is with a bloomery, where bellows force air through a mass of burning charcoal and iron ore. The air forced through the bellow converts the carbon in the charcoal into carbon monoxide, and the carbon monoxide pulls the oxygen off the iron oxide, leaving behind iron. However, because bloomery furnaces don't get ridiculously hot, the product from a bloomery furnace is a porous mass of iron and slag called a bloom. That mass needs to be worked in a forge to have the slag and impurities hammered away. The lower temperatures are associated with a few things. First, bloomery furnaces are smaller units that are typically run periodically. Second, the bellows that force the air into the furnace do not do so so regularly enough to accelerate combustion of the charcoal. Third, the fuel source of charcoal is less efficient than future systems at sustaining extreme temperatures. So you can see where I'm going here. Developments in the Iron Age moved to systems that could produce more iron of higher quality faster than what a bloomery could perform. This led to the blast furnace. Now, China has blast furnaces dating all the way back to the 5th century BCE, but Europe did not see these structures until the late 15th century, and it was Europe that pushed design to improve efficiency and flexibility of the furnaces through the next 500 years. Blast furnaces require three things to function properly. Iron ore, duh. Coal as a fuel source, but more importantly, coked coal. Coke is made by crushing coal into small pieces and loading it into a long rectangular chamber that is heated in the absence of air. The crushed coal is heated to around 1800 Fahrenheit, where the coal is broken down into volatile gases, liquid byproducts, and solid coke. Because all the junk is removed as volatile gases or liquid byproducts, the coke is of much higher purity than the coal precursor, but it's also much more porous, making for faster and more efficient burning. Finally, for blast furnaces, you'll need limestone. Limestone is a flux. It will soak up all those impurities in the pig iron, like silica and alumina, to form a liquid slag. This was a key development beyond bloomery, as the slag fully melts and floats above the metallic liquid iron rather than incorporating into it like the bloom from the bloomery. Because the slag floats on top, it can be decanted off the top of the molten iron through a slag door. Blast furnaces work by loading all of these things into the top of a massive structure and blasting air, and in more modern times, superheated steam, into the bottom of the furnace. These furnaces get up to 3300 Fahrenheit because their massive size helps retain heat, their coke can combust more quickly, and because the air being blasted in is hotter and faster than bellowed air. Once a sufficient amount of time passes, a defined amount of iron has begun to pool at the bottom of the furnace, a hole is then drilled into the side, and iron is tapped out through the troughs to form pig iron. When the molten iron is tapped, the door gets plugged, and a new cycle begins, continuously running until no more feedstock is loaded in. Now, when I say the word blast furnace, you probably get quite a picture in your mind, and you're right, we'll get to that. But patience, young Padawan, because we are standing on the shoulders of giants, and those giants are important to our wee story. 
The first blast furnaces in Europe are not the hulking masses of steel that you're likely envisioning. They're much smaller stacks of rocks in the countryside, where streams ran water wheels for the blast, and trees were plentiful enough to produce coke, or even charcoal, in the earliest days. These blast furnaces would be lucky to produce three tons of iron per day, and consumed an extreme amount of fuel to do so. Still, their value comes in their construction. Unlike modern furnaces, geography and geology played a huge role in how these furnaces were built. Harbison Walker's been around for 150 years, but before that, many people had to use other means for refractories. An article from Nippon Steel outlines that the earliest blast furnaces likely did not use definite shapes, but might have blocks cut from natural stones and rarely air-dried fireclay bricks. More likely, rammed clay deposits helped form the working lining in the best-case scenario, and loam or cob was used in tandem with local stones in less optimal scenarios. Could you imagine making a proper blast furnace with what amounts to unrefined dirt being slapped onto the inside of a wall? Another aspect of these original blast furnaces is their geography. Charge needed to be added in by hand, so the most efficient furnaces tended to be built right into the hillside, so workers could be on top of the hill charging the furnace, while other workers could be on the bottom tapping it. This is actually a key feature of the first blast furnace we'll be speaking on here, the Blanavon Ironworks in Wales, which operated from 1788 until 1904. While the history of this particular ironworks dates back to the Roman period, landowners leased Abergavenny Hills to the three businessmen Thomas Hill, Thomas Hopkins, and Benjamin Pratt. These businessmen saw a great opportunity in the hills given the local source of those three essential components of iron making, coal, iron ore, and limestone. Within a short period of time, the Blanavon Ironworks became Wales's first multi-furnace site for iron production in 1789, including three blast furnaces, calcining kilns for limestone, a coking area, a cast house, and an on-site village for workers, including a company shop. So what made Blanavon so successful that skilled workers would come from their own ironworks in their hometown to contribute there? Well, for one, Blanavon was built with the idea of being a multi-furnace ironworks from the start. But even more, it was committed to using only the most modern technology, including superheated steam, coke instead of coal, and a water balance tower, basically an early industrial elevator, to assist in the transport of raw materials and finished iron over the Grand Hills. As I mentioned before, these furnaces are built right into the hillside that they occupy. This allows workers to use the water balance tower to move materials and charge the furnace, while also working on the bottom to tap iron. In fact, the Blenavon Ironworks were so well engineered that famed English engineers Sidney Gilchrist Thomas and Percy Gilchrist ran experiments there to develop the Gilchrist Thomas process. This refining process is basically the antithesis of the Bessemer converter, where in the Bessemer process, which predates open hearth furnaces, inexpensively produces steel by blowing air through molten iron, where the air forms oxides from impurities like manganese and silicon in the melt, which is an exothermic reaction that keeps the mass hot. However, the Gilchrist-Thomas process did something more. Through their experiments at Blanavon, they found that a basic refractory lining like tar-bonded dolomite could be used to capture phosphorus impurities from high phosphorus iron ores to produce steel from lower quality ore. However, the downside of it over the Bessemer converter was that basic refractories did not last as long as the fire clay refractories used in the Bessemer converter. Still, it was research like this that made it possible for countries like Germany and the USA to utilize previously uneconomic phosphorus iron ore to produce steel. This is a big deal as it's key to these countries becoming the steel superpowers that they are today. Fun fact, even the iron at Blanavon was too rich in phosphorus to produce high-quality steel, hence the work done by Gilchrist Thomas. That's why it's the Blanavon Ironworks, and not the Blanavon Steelworks. This blast furnace only operated to produce high-throughput iron for wrought or cast shapes. 
So yeah, the Blandemont Ironworks operated from 1788 until 1904. 116 years may not be as long as the 150 years that HWI has been making refractories, but it's a heck of a tenure for manufacturing, especially as technology did not stop advancing while Blandemont was producing. That ended up being the challenge. As new technologies and new manufacturing sites began to take root during the British Industrial Revolution, the ironworks had trouble returning to the peak production capacity of 35,000 tons per year. The boom and bust economy, pressure for wage cuts, strikes, and the need to remain profitable often put workers in precarious places. This is where our ghost story begins. Many efforts were made to help Blanavon remain profitable, such as the initial plan to build on-site housing and shops to attract widespread talent. But as profits became more slim, housing prices and shop prices went up to reflect that. This led to horrible living conditions and unhappy workers toiling away in brutal work environments. To add on to the housing problem, the cottages were built within spitting distance of the ironwork doors, leading to horrendous air quality. I won't even mention the thermal oxidizer right in the middle of Cottage Square. Many find that the cottages are far more haunted than the ironworks themselves, with people reporting apparitions that they originally believed to be unhappy reenactors, doors locking themselves, and items mysteriously becoming stacked in locked rooms. However, I'm sure that lurking spirits could also be found in the blast furnace as well. For one, in 1845, government inspectors discovered 185 children under the age of 13, and as young as five, working in the ironworks and surrounding mines, smashing iron ore, or pushing around trams and material. And the adult workers did not fare much better, as the importance of maintaining tapping times prevailed over worker safety. The cast house floor is no walk in the park. In the days before automated machines, workers would have to manually tap and replug these furnaces. Workers would hold heavy metal rods while others would hit it with a sledgehammer to break through the clay that sealed the furnace and begin the tapping process. When the hole was eventually broken through, a torrent of molten iron would come pouring through with sparks shooting out a great distance. This is because the pressure of the heavy molten iron above it forces the metal through the tiny hole. And then, once the tap is completed, a worker would need to put a glob of clay at the end of a rod and pack it into the 3000 Fahrenheit tap hole to reseal it for future taps. And that's not even mentioning the atmospheric conditions on the floor. Gases coming off the metal include hydrogen, carbon monoxide, carbon dioxide, and other off-gassing that might come from the slag. This incredibly noxious fume would be downright deadly, and workers operating so close to it would have easily lost consciousness next to the runners of molten iron. This helps explain the spike in electromagnetic reading that can often be found in the ironworks late at night. While tales like this are as old as time, they are also in more recent times as well. Blenavon Ironworks might have paranormal occurrences from the 18th and 19th centuries, but more modern blast furnaces can tell even more chilling tales. For that, I introduce two blast furnaces many of us in the industry know all too well. First is one of local importance to me, the Cary Furnaces. These furnaces in Pittsburgh, PA, were built in 1881 with a peak production capacity of almost 1,200 tons of iron per day. Compare that to Blanavon, who peaked at under 100 tons of iron per day. Now, unlike the Welsh blast furnaces, Cary furnaces were built along a river due to their need for massive amounts of cooling water. It took 5 million gallons of water every single day to cool the blast furnace shells to maintainable temperatures. This is another key aspect of modern blast furnaces that differs slightly from Blanavon and massively from those before it. The hottest part of a blast furnace is the core, which can reach temperatures well above 3,500. It's honestly, it's hard to measure. It's so hot because it's in the very middle of the furnace. But surrounding that core is a layer of slag, and then several layers of refractory, and then a cooling area between the refractory and the steel shell. 
in order to keep the core from growing and damaging the refractory of the steel shell, and that, that active water layer is maintained stripping the heat out of the refractory and slag skull, and it's still a method used in many furnace types today. Another benefit of the location is its ability to easily transport materials like coal, limestone, and iron ore, and even transport the pig iron produced downriver to the Homestead steel mill. The carry furnaces were absolute beasts of industry, bolstering seven blast furnaces at one point, part of the 59 blast furnaces that operated at one point in the Pittsburgh Mon Valley. Anything that could possibly outshine this level of production from carry blast furnaces would take the effort of an entire city, and that city is Birmingham, Alabama. Birmingham was founded on iron and steel, as all the ingredients needed for steel production, iron, coal, and limestone, could be found within 30 miles of the city's area. That's not the same as Pittsburgh, because Pittsburgh needed to pull its iron from many areas across the northeast of the U.S. The first blast furnaces to utilize this magic little area are the Alice furnaces. But within just 10 years, a total of 28 blast furnaces were putting out 2,200 tons of iron per day. Perhaps the most famous of these 28 furnaces were the two that belonged to James W. Sloss, which went into blast in 1882. Built over 100 years after our earlier Welsh blast furnace, much was different in these designs. Too much to truly get into. But of note is the development of zoning the vessel based on the role in the process. The stock line and upper stack near the top of the blast furnace accepts the charge materials. Although the temperatures here are just around 500 Fahrenheit, not only are you dealing with the impact, abrasion, and erosion of the charging material, but with the high velocity of the dust and fumes going out. Moving down the stack or shaft into the belly of the beast, you start to encounter higher and fluctuating temperatures nearing 2500 with chemical reactions, attacks, like carbon monoxide and alkali, and the thermal stresses. Going deeper still into the Bosch, which can be the hottest part of the furnace, temperatures start to get closer to 3,000 degrees Fahrenheit or higher, with more reactions as you approach the hot blast tweers that feed the furnace with hot air needed to melt the iron ore and coke into iron that accumulates in the hearth. More refractory products and more chemically resistant refractories were demanded, especially in the Bosch, Tweer, and hearth areas, where extreme temperatures high compressive stresses, and extremely corrosive slags were present, needing the most resistant refractory products. This might not have been true in the earliest days of Sloss and Carry furnaces, but through time, with the evolution of blast furnace shell design and practices, and as wear patterns became more evident, demand for longer-lasting refractory increased. So once furnaces that were fully clay-lined became furnaces owned with fire clay in the stack, malite and high alumina for the Bosch and Tweers, and carbon or tar-bonded refractories for the hearth and tap holes. Today, depending on the furnace, of course, some refractory designs need to move into thinner linings, using high alumina and silicon carbide for its high refractoriness and its high thermal conductivity for the Bosch area, and carbon graphite in the hearths. This is why carry furnaces utilized water cooling, pulling heat out of the refractory to increase its performance. This is the feature of all modern blast furnaces, but likely not the case when these, when these furnaces went into blast 150 years ago. In those days, the incredible heat on the relatively low-grade refractory, meant that the refractory got degraded much more rapidly than we might see today. In the earliest days of carry, sloss, and the like, these linings would have likely been relined almost every year. Later on, in the middle of the 20th century, the water-cooled shell and the higher-grade refractories meant that the linings could last up to five years. These days, blast furnace refractories can last well over a decade without being taken down. A pretty incredible development, if you ask me. Anyways, back to carry versus sloss. While Pittsburgh had a rich history dating back hundreds of years before the carry furnaces, taking workers from boat building yards as that industry waned and moved them into iron and steel production, Birmingham was an incredibly young city, with only 3,000 people when Alice and Sloss opened, and it took up to 500 people to run these furnaces 24-7, 365. 
so it was important to bring people into the city, most of which being immigrants from Europe or oppressed African Americans who were looking to escape the world of sharecropping in the agricultural industry for the steady work of the iron and steel industry. This drive for industry brought Birmingham's population of 3,000 up to 132,000 within 30 years. Possibly one of the most interesting developments in a city built by industry and for industry was that the housing developments were built by the factories themselves. This attracted workers while also ensuring control for the companies operating them. Emergencies had workers at nearby disposal. They were able to control commutes and know about worker health through local doctor's offices. But the lack of government control meant that living conditions were paltry at best. Actually, a great little story about living conditions comes from an article by Robin McDonald in the Aniston Star, telling how people gathered in the smoke, the fumes, and the steam at night along the dirt roads and viaduct to watch molten iron and burning slag pour from the furnace mouths. Some brought their dates, some brought their children, some came on a Sunday afternoon for furnace party picnics. Interestingly enough, the same can be said in Pittsburgh, where people would take dates to the slag pit, where slag pots were dumped like lava into a small valley in the South Hills. Anyways, all said during its height of production around 1930, 68% of Birmingham's jobs were in blast furnaces, steel mills, foundries, and fabricating plants. With such a dominance in the workforce and a strong culture against immigrants and African Americans, it was easy for the owners and operators to take advantage of their workers. One famous line overheard in Sloss Furnace Operation goes, Don't kill any mules. Mules cost $25. But men? Men we can replace. Workers were expected to tap the furnace every four hours, and every minute they're late, it's a loss for the company. So safety and readiness took a backseat to production timeline. This led to extremely dangerous working conditions, burns, severe bodily harm, and often death. We're talking about the coke and iron ore dust from the raw material feeding areas. The cast house floor was sparks and molten metal running mere feet from people wearing almost no PPE. Charging the furnace with materials where workers would empty wheelbarrows into the top of the furnace, being exposed to 500 Fahrenheit heat, noxious fumes, and risk of falling inside. There are droves of news stories, police reports, and worker testimonials revealing how hundreds of people died working at and around the Sloss furnaces. Honestly, and this is me lowering my flashlight from under my face and telling it straight, it was horrible. In my research of reading some of these stories and listening to other paranormal podcasts on the subject, it was downright gut-wrenching. If you're into that kind of stuff, knock yourself out. I can recommend some episodes to listen to. But these are my coworkers. These are the people who do what I do, people I have worked with for years who run these facilities and maintain these furnaces. The wanton disregard for safety in these stories made me sick, and I don't want to subject anyone to the stories of them. All right, flashlight back up. Perhaps it's because of this horrible treatment of the workers at Sloss Furnaces, instilling fear of harm on the workers over its 90 years of history, but the Sloss Furnaces remain as one of the most haunted places in Alabama. All of those deaths, horrendous injuries, and demands for faster production at the risk of human life put a psychic stain on the place. Paranormal activity is rampant at Sloss Furnaces, including while it was still running, where workers reported items mysteriously being moved from their respective places, and even a story of a man emerging from a cloud of sparks and smoke, despite the fact that the temperature would have been far too hot for a human being to be that close to that area. Regardless, there are countless stories for people seeing ominous figures and experiencing occurrences that seem far from natural. Sloss Furnaces is also regularly frequented by paranormal hunters, who use electromagnetic meters to detect ghostly presences. Infrared thermometers are also used to detect disruptions to the energy fields. 
There are great stories found all over the internet of electronic recordings that identify voice phenomena at Sloss Furnaces. You know, unknown voices saying things like, what happened to me? Or, get out. There are also stories from paranormal hunters who experienced large objects being moved while they were the only ones on site late at night. The same paranormal sightings are common at carry furnaces, who host haunted tours around Halloween every year. Here, touch flashlights, electromagnetic readers, and communication devices are used to interact with those beyond the veil. It's incredibly common during these tours for flashlights that are left sitting out to turn on and off by themselves. High-frequency radio waves get picked up, and often people mention feeling pinched or poked when no one is around them. Having had the opportunity to tour carry furnaces myself, I can say that it would be an incredibly eerie place at night. While my tour guide Rich was able to tell me about working conditions on site in the 1970s, I can imagine that spirits lurking there are not from his era, but from almost 100 years before, where the safety measures and technology he shared did not exist. One of the things we often hear about when it comes to people believing or not believing in the supernatural is how we don't see apparitions of people wearing their favorite NSYNC t-shirts, or ghosts telling us to get woke. We have a lot of haunted stories from people in the 1700s and 1800s, but that number decreases in the late 1900s and is, is almost gone by the 2000s. Why? Well, maybe it's because better lighting allowed people to use all of their senses to the best of their ability, proving that ghosts were nothing more than an overactive imagination centralized around the witching hours in the dark. Or maybe it's because cell phones and technology made it so that people became a lot more skeptical. Or maybe it's because work conditions have improved so much and people are working more carefully with better training and in better work environments that we don't have people losing their lives to their jobs, leaving them haunting the worksite for all eternity. Safety is important. And unless you want to party with Casper the ghost, you should remember, it's not just safety first, it's safety always. I know I'm not the only person thankful to those who came before me pushing for better working conditions or promoting safe practices both in industry and general life. Crazy to think that in a hundred years, People will look back on our generation and see all the times a worker put productivity ahead of safety, just like we look at Carrie, Sloss, and Blanavon that way. I've had a lot of fun researching this topic and putting my skeptic hard hat on in the name of Paranormal Refractory Investigations. Blast furnaces are an amazing technology developed over thousands of years to bring us the production capabilities we have today. While it is much less common, there are still a handful of blast furnaces operating today, I just thank God they're operated by companies respectful of their workers' health and safety, as are all the melting technologies available in the iron and steel industry. I'm also proud of how refractories have helped shape these furnaces into the efficient and hardworking machines they are today. Developments in refractory technology, zoning, and collaboration between the melt shop and refractory providers have helped make the U.S. the most efficient steel producers in the world. If you'd like to learn more about iron and steel production and the refractories used therein, reach out to us at technical-marketing at thinkhwi.com. In the meantime, stick to better horror story writers. If you're a yinzer like me, I'd recommend Imaginary Friends by Stephen Chbosky. It chilled me to the core. But no matter what, have a great Halloween, and thanks for listening.